You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, good morning, everybody. I'm really pleased to be here and um, appreciate you all getting up and, and jumping on Zoom for this. Um, so I guess... Uh, the easiest way to, to start, well, first I should tell you, so thank you for that introduction. I've been in publishing for about 12 or 13 years now. I also um, worked at Oxford University Press in New York, where I was working on their law list as well. That's where I got my start. So um, I've been at three different presses, and I think I have a pretty decent idea of what, you know, most presses want, you know, the larger presses, the smaller ones, and the medium ones. Um, but I think really first it would be helpful to just go over um, the basics. So each press uh, has usually listed on their website the, the proposal guidelines. Um, and it's usually pretty easy to find. Um, I would say that the guidelines are pretty much similar across the board, but um, it's always good to take a look and make sure that you're tailoring your proposal to the press that you're delivering the project to um, specifically. Um, in general, I'd say most proposals, you know, they include an overview of the book project, uh, the table of contents, um, that also includes the, the detail within each chapter, um, a brief discussion of where the book fits within the, the existing literature, um, a sense of a market for the book, and then perhaps a, a sample chapter or two. So that's kind of the basics of the proposal. But um, I'd like to get more into the nitty gritty of what makes uh, you know, an exceptional proposal. Um, so for me, I think one of the first things that's really helpful to have in a book proposal is, is to think about, you know, what the hook is. So, you know, not only what are you going to be doing in this book, um, but why is it important for the readers that you're targeting? Um, so, so again, it should be descriptive. I should have a sense by, by the time I'm done with the first page of like, okay, this person is planning to do X, but I also wanna leave that first or second page really understanding why it matters that they're planning to do X. It seems simple, but I think I've seen a lot of proposals that um, do kind of veer towards just merely descriptive and I want them to say a little bit more. So always think about that. Um, you know, I'd say the, the next most important thing that I'm looking for in a proposal is a real emphasis and attention on the audience. Um, and I think there's so much that flows from identifying who your audience is. I think if you can, at the very beginning, understand who you want to reach and how you're going to reach them, it's going to help you really craft that proposal. It's going to answer a lot of questions for you. Um, so, you know, when I'm looking at a proposal, it's really helpful if the author has a very clear-eyed sense of who they're writing for. And a lot of people think that, you know, if they say that their book is going to be for a lot of people, then it's going to be more enticing to me. But actually, I would much rather have you be pre 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 precise um, and not tell me it's for everybody, because I think when you're trying to write for everybody, you end up alienating 
like everyone actually. Um, so, so being really precise, you know, even if it's a subset of a specific field, if it's niche, but if that's the, the audience you really want to re reach, then, then I think being honest about that is going to help you and it's going to help the editor be able to give you a sense of what they can do. So, so that's really good. And, and I think the audience also helps you, right? So if you're writing for an audience that includes undergrads, you like it's a, a book that you would hope be, be taught in courses like early early courses for undergrads, then you know what kind of book will be needed for that. So um, it's not going to be 500 pages, right? So you're going to have to, um, you know, make sure that the audience is in line with the kind of strategy that you're hoping um, that the book will have. Um, so I imagine this is relevant for pretty much everybody who's here today. Um, but another thing that is really helpful to have in a proposal, and I don't know if every press requires this, but I think most do, is just having a discussion about, you know, how the, the project and the research has evolved since it was a dissertation um, and how, it, how it's going to emerge as, as a book. Um, so, you know, this is a, I, it's really helpful to just have a paragraph where you're super specific and you say, okay, this is how I've reframed the, the book or reformatted, or, you know, I've taken these chapters out, I've put this in, the argument is different. Anything like that is really helpful. And it also shows me that um, you've done a lot of work. You've thought a lot about how the, the dissertation is going to translate into something that's um, focused for a larger audience. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, another thing that's important to think about when you're putting together your proposal is the fit. And that means not only the literature that you're um, swimming in, so the books that are sort of like yours that you're going to be building on, or books that are similar in terms of the style or um, the impact, that's all really important. You want those comparative and competitive books listed, but you also want to take some time to think through, uh, you know, what books on, so if you're, if you're gonna submit a project to me, for instance, um, what books have UC Press published in the past, you know, two, three, five years um, that would be something that would, you know, sit nicely next to your book, you know? Um, editors often think in terms of sublists and different niche areas that they're really interested in teasing out. And so if you see that um, a, an editor has published a number of books on a certain topic, um, you can kind of work that into your proposal just to, to let them know that you're already aware of what they're working in. Um, that's, that's really helpful. And that goes again towards thinking through, you know, the proposal is one document, but you can tweak it for each press that you're thinking of sending it to. Um, let's see. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention about that is, um, while it's okay to cite books that we published like 25 years ago, that editor probably wasn't working there then. So you can say, oh, you know, this seminal, this seminal book was really influential to me as I was working through, and that's great, and we like that, but like try and find something on the backlist that's from just a couple years ago. Um, so one thing, another thing that's really important that I look for is um, just a, a distinctive and memorable voice. Um, so, you know, it's not only what your proposal is going to be saying, but, you know, what the book is going to be saying, but it's also how you say it. So, you know, 
I think the, 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 the structure of a dissertation is such that it doesn't allow for the kind of creativity that you can, you can really work in with a book. Um, so thinking about, you know, your own individual voice and being memorable and, and, you know, that can even be looking at books that you really admire um, and saying, wow, this style, this is what they did um, to make their book really distinctive. And you can think through how you might, um, you know, craft your own style, um, thinking about other people's styles. Um, so that's something to consider. Um, so this is something that I think over the last decade that I've been in publishing has really um, emerged as something that you see more in a proposal. And, and certainly with first books, it's not you know, we don't expect uh, a first time author to come out with this amazing platform, but platform is now something we talk about in publishing. Um, and, and really what that basically means is how are you gonna partner with the press to help us, you know, get the word out about your book? Um, this, this doesn't mean you have to have like, you know, you don't have to be an influencer on Twitter or whatever, but um, you know, showing that you're not afraid to leverage your networks um, and, and promote your scholarship, because it really is about getting the word out there about your research. It's not self-promotion. Um, I tell that to authors all the time when they're like, ooh, I don't know if I want to, you know, tweet about my book. And I'm like, you should. Um, so, so definitely don't feel shy about talking about that. Um, and then also, you know, anytime you've uh, written for or been quoted in any major media, um, including some mention of that is really, really, really helpful. And it definitely, like when I'm bringing a proposal to our publishing committee, um, our publicity and marketing team really loves to hear stuff like that. So it helps um, generate excitement really early. Um, so that's helpful. Um, but it's certainly by no means like a prerequisite. I bring books all the time where the author um, doesn't necessarily write for general outlets or anything like that. Um, one minor note on titles. So always change your title from the title that you used for your dissertation. Um, we're going to make you change it anyway. Uh, I always tell, I'm, I try and tell people early, like if you have a great title for the book and you use like, or for the dissertation and you love it so much, just save it for the book. Um, because we, we really can't use it the same. We want to differentiate the works. They are completely different works. Um, so make sure that you're thinking about that. And, you know, make the title, I would say, um, titles can always be changed and can always be, you know, it can be a conversation with the author. But if you come out strong with a title that's really clear and authoritative, um, that's a lot more helpful for me. And it's another way for you to message your book really fast because editors get lots and lots of proposals. So the more often you can hit them over the head with your ideas, the better, um, so that they can remember you. Um, yeah, uh, I have so much more to say. How are we doing on time? We're good, we're good. But um, do you want me to ask you a couple of things as a prompt? Sure, sure. So just in terms of process, what, what, what happens after you get the first contact from an author? Yeah, so um, usually the first contact is either a general query. So somebody will say, I'm working on this proposal. Here's a short description. Are you interested in seeing the actual proposal? Or people will just send me a proposal. So the way it usually goes from there 
is uh, I take a look at the proposal, maybe I have some questions, but generally it's, it's a pretty fast process where I would you know, make a decision about whether or not it's something that fits with the list and, and tell the author. If I do think that it fits, um, generally I'd say for first books, um, I would ask to see a full manuscript. So that could mean, you know, if you've already, if you've already revised your, your project and you have a full manuscript ready, then basically what that means is I'm inviting the project um, for a peer review when it's ready. And so that would mean usually two reviewers and a couple of months in terms of their time commitment. And really once those peer reviews come back, uh, that's when I get to you know, sit down with the author and say, okay, here's the feedback we have. Um, does it warrant us moving forward with, our, with the committee to see if I can get this approved for a contract? Um, or do we need to revise and resubmit? Or is that the time where we have to decline the project because the reviews aren't strong enough? So that's kind of where, where the process goes from there. And is that committee similar to the syndicates of the British universities? Is it like, who is that committee? Are they academics or marketing people and academics or? Yeah, so, so there's a couple layers of processes. So the first, the first thing I would do is I would bring it to our internal committee. So, I, and I think this, this is pretty standard across university presses. So um, first I bring it to an internal committee um, and that consists of everybody in our editorial group, um, our marketing team, our publicity team, our sales team, and we just really get, a, you know, get together and we talk about the book, the plan for the book, the market for the book. Um, and generally, you know, that's usually that is once the peer reviews are in and if they're positive and, and the, you know, the editor is excited, it, it usually works out. Um, so that's the internal committee. And then the external committee is, you know, there are different names for it. Um, we call it at, that at UC, we call it the, um, the, the executive committee or whatever, um, the editorial committee. And that almost always invariably means uh, representatives of the university that we work at with, uh, that, you know, scholars from every field that we publish in basically. Um, sometimes they're anonymous and, and I can't tell you who they are sometimes uh, it's open for people to see, but generally that's how it works. Great. And um, can I ask you one more question? So the why does it matter or the so what question, do you um, have a sense of what kind of importance you're looking for? So is it about in, uh, significance to the field or why it matters to the discipline or why it matters? I guess that also varies across different kinds of publishing. Yeah, I think it it um, it depends on on the type of intervention you're you're planning to make, right? So, um, it's it's a very broad it's a very broad question. Um, I think your your answer could be anything from everybody in the world should know about this, and it's going to be a general interest book, and it's going to change the way people think about X, Y, or Z, or it's you know it's this very niche specific thing that a subsection of a subdiscipline is going to care about, but it's going to change the way that they think about things or, you know, it's a new theory or, um, you know, yeah. anthropologically, maybe it's an interesting ethnography that's doing something different. I mean, it, it can be anything really. 
Thanks, thanks. Um, so Ben has a question and also uh, Siddharth. So Ben, do you want to pose it yourself and Siddharth after Ben? Yeah, thanks, son. And thank you, Michelle, for those comments. They were really, really helpful. I wondered if you could just say a little bit more about the differences in approach. So when you started talking, you mentioned a distinction between, say, a small press and a medium-sized press and a large press. I think we'd probably all have a sense of what you mean by a large academic press like CUP or OUP, quite global operation. But I wonder if you could perhaps give us examples of presses that you're thinking of as being smaller ones, medium ones and larger ones. And then what, what might the difference be between um, those presses in terms of what, the, what things they're looking for and the kinds of questions that they might be asking themselves um, uh, about what they're going to accept or not? Hmm. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. Um, so, so smaller presses, um, I'm thinking, you know, my, for better or worse, my, my knowledge kind of, uh, is, is university presses within the U S. Um, so I, I can't speak to the size of, of presses necessarily internationally, but, you know, there are a lot of great, um, small presses in the U S. Um, I'm specifically thinking of, let's see, NYU, UNC. Um, I feel like Stanford is on the cusp of small to medium. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there are lots of, of good ones. Um, I would say medium size is, is yeah, like the potentially Stanford, um, you know, Duke is medium size, Columbia, um, Yale, Harvard, uh, UC Press, I would consider to be medium size, although we are pretty, we're on the larger end of that. We have about um, 100 employees, um, whereas Stanford has about 40. So um, yeah, so that's the, the, the larger side of, of the medium. <laughs> and, and then the larger ones are really just your behemoths like uh, Cambridge, Oxford, the ones that have international um, cachet, I think, uh, which is interesting because I think a lot of the medium-sized presses, including UC, um, Harvard, etc., they they have international reach. It's just that they um, don't necessarily have offices, you know, in the UK and and India or wherever. Um, so so yeah, and in terms, I mean, I would say it all goes back to scale when thinking about what each of those presses want. And I think that's an area where, um, you know, if you had your heart set on a larger press, but the larger press isn't interested, I think looking at the smaller presses is a really good idea because they have very targeted acquisitions programs just by dint of their size. So, you know, UNC has, has a tremendous, um, for instance, I've been looking at a lot of their books and admire them a lot. There's a tremendous emphasis on African-American history, say, at UNC Press. And they do it really, really, really well. Um, and they're a small press, and so there are a lot of books that um, they work on that end up being really prominent in the field, but still small press. And so I think that's a good way um, to try and strategize. You know, The small presses might not have as large a catalog, but they might have a more focused one. And if you do your research, it might might make sense for you to 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 can you know to think about going to them. Does that answer your question, Ben? Yeah, very much so. Thanks, Michelle. 
That's really helpful. So we've got two questions which are about the transformation of the PhD to a book. One is from Siddharth. Um, Siddharth, do you mind if I just pose the question um, about whether you can say a little bit more about uh, uh, reworking the dissertation into a book? And then Millicent has a related question which is, in that process, is it better to reach out to a publisher with a paragraph gauging interest and hoping for some direction on the transformation or is it better to undertake the transformation yourself and then approach the press? So they're kind of not dissimilar questions. Yeah, um, I'm going to answer the second one first um, because, you know, everybody's different. Everybody thinks through problems differently, but I would definitely say uh, there's a lot of work that goes into to reframing and revising a dissertation. And so, you know, I'm very happy to have really early conversations with people, but I do think that to organize that conversation, it's much, much more helpful if the author has done the work of thinking about how things are going to be re reformatted. And if they have a concise pitch about, you know, what they think the book will look like. And they might, you know, it might evolve from there. You know, the editor might say, oh, have you ever thought about like tweaking it a little bit this way? But I, I do think, you know, having having a couple of, you know, doing the work, having a couple of sentences that you feel really strongly about the direction of the book, because it is your book. And I want, you know, as an editor, it's like, I want to be the cheerleader, but I want you to be the champion of what it is you're, you're pitching. I want you to have an idea of like, what is the one thing? Because unfortunately, people read a lot of books and they don't remember everything in those books. Uh, and so what's the one takeaway that you really want to bring to people? Um, and once you have that, then I think you are ready to have that conversation. Um, and, and, you know, I think editors, we always want to know what the hot new stuff is, um, early and often. So I think that's, that's fine to reach out once you kind of get that down pat. Um, in terms of working a dissertation into a book, I'm really glad that question came up because I feel like I should have addressed that at the beginning, but I think there's, um, so first I'll say, uh, there are a lot of great resources and in fact um, I can email a couple of books that I think are, are really good. The one that, that comes up offhand is um, From Dissertation to Book. Um, oh, I have it right here. Uh, this lovely book. Um, I can, I'll send it to you, but um, it's really great. It's written by um, a scholar who himself worked in scholarly publishing, published a bunch, but also revised his own dissertation with first PhD. So it's really good. It's really helpful. So books like these, resources like these are great. There's, there's a plethora of them out there. I recommend them. Um, I also recommend if you have the luxury and the privilege of putting the dissertation in a drawer for like a couple of months, and not thinking about it at all. I know that that's not always possible, um, but if you have that, that ability to give yourself some distance, I think it really helps you to um, reconceptualize and get back in touch with why the heck did I even embark on this project? What was so important about it in the first place? And then thinking through you know, how that could translate into a book. But in terms of the more like specific guidelines, I would say, for, for doing that. So first of all, um, 
cutting out lit review, unnecessary lit review from your dissertation. So all that amazing work that you did to impress your dissertation committee, um, really looking at it, um, you know, like clear eyed and saying, what literature actually do I need to cite to prop up this new argument that I'm making? And what is perhaps, you know, nice to know, but not necessary for this and then cutting it or at least at the very least moving it to to a footnote or, or an end note. Um, really, because you want you want to be clear and you want it to be direct um, what you're trying to say. Um, so another thing that I see a lot in first books is um, a lot of previewing or reviewing and signposting basically. So a lot of in this paragraph, I will do this and then doing it and then saying, see, I have done this in this paragraph. In the next paragraph, I, we don't need any of that. Um, so, so just saying it straight out um, is, is the best thing you can do. So getting rid of that signposting is really, really helpful and, and it makes it flow a lot better. Um, yeah, so I know I just told you to move things to footnotes, but I also think you should take a careful look at the footnotes and endnotes and make sure that they're not like eating up the entire page. Mm. <laughs> because when I see that, I get very nervous. Um, so, so, you know, cutting them down in, in number and size. Um, unfortunately, I tell people this. I tell authors of first books. I tell authors of fifth books you're never going to finish a book. It's never going to be complete, but you have to be done. So just cut out some, some of the footnotes. Uh, you'll thank me later. Um, and then, you know, I think pretty much all the time, like in almost every case, the introduction needs to be completely rewritten. Um, so, and, and oftentimes I would say most people write it last um, once they've really gone through the rest of the chapters. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so, very helpful. Um, the, the genre question about the difference in genre from a PhD to a book, I think is hard also because many candidates don't have anyone to guide them because their supervisor has stopped supervising them. And unless they have a very generous supervisor who's willing to help them, then it's quite, it's quite a tricky moment to navigate. Um, somebody, Valeria has asked about the relationship of publishing articles while you're doing your PhD and whether that makes it unattractive to a book publisher. Is there a rule of thumb about that? There's not a specific rule of thumb. I would say, I would say most editors understand, right, the professional need to, to publish articles alongside the book. And on the one hand, you know, I think it's a really good opportunity when you're thinking about revising your dissertation, if there's like one kind of wonky chapter that's not fitting in with your overarching argument for the book, like pulling that out and then making that into an article is really helpful. But in terms of, uh, you know, coverage, I think that's a question that we get a lot. And yeah, I, I would say 20 to 25% of a of a manuscript could be published in article form but also you know i mean articles are a different genres they're they're written differently um and so i'm not as concerned about about you know one or two articles being published before the book comes out what i am concerned is if there's an article that kind of distills down the main argument in your book like the heart of your argument and 
because then it's like, well, if people can read like a 40 page article instead of paying for a 200 page book. So thinking through that and making sure that you're saving all the juicy bits for the actual book. Mm, that's great advice because that's because in a way, even something like the lit review is quite nice to take out and publish um, because apparently review articles are the most heavily cited type of article. God knows why, but <laughs> um, and then there was a couple more questions. One was from uh, Ashrafal about the differences between a university press and a commercial press like Rutledge or something. And then a follow up question about from Ben about do you want to see the, the examiner's reports or dissertation committee reports or not? So second question first, no, I don't want to see them. Nope, no thank you. <laughs> okay, that's interesting um, because in Britain they make you send them. Oh, interesting. So CUP makes you send the examiner's reports. It's both, it's both interesting and actually slightly disheartening with my yeah. other hat on as both a supervisor um, of people who obviously always get glowing examiner's reports. But the, <laughs> as, as, a sometime, as a sometime writer or a frequent writer of glowing examiner's reports, I'm often thinking that I'm doing a candidate a favour of a bit of a leg up kind of thinking, yeah. you know, this will be actually really functionally quite useful to them in the next life cycle of this. It's really interesting to hear you say that actually then it's not yeah. the meal ticket that we sometimes take it to be. <laughs> well, you know, I think where where your 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 hard work uh, comes in, in handy, Ben, is, you know, if you were to reach out to me or if the author was to reach out to me and say, you know, Ben, was, I, I actually think it's more powerful if you were to, to reach out, you know, to me as the editor and say, um, I have this... Uh, this grad student who did a really great job on their dissertation, they're looking to make it into a book. I think it'll be a great fit for your press. That's always nice when you can get an advisor um, who's, who's willing to do that for you. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And certainly it won't, it won't make, sh you know, it doesn't mean that we're definitely going to publish your book, but I think it's something that an editor pays attention to. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's a different way of doing that. I think that, yeah. that would be helpful. Um, in terms of the question about commercial presses versus U UPs, um, you know, I, not having worked at a commercial press, uh, I'm not as familiar with um, how things work internally. Mm -hmm. um, I would say I'm in university press publishing because I believe in the nonprofit status um, and I, that's important to me. Um, and it's, it's weird because UPs on the one hand, we are a nonprofit, on the other hand, we still wanna sell books. <laughs> um, whereas I do think, you know, the Routledges and other um, presses of the world, um, their, their focus is more, more on profitability. Um, and yeah, I, I don't really think I have anything intelligent to say about. That's about all right. That. You know, I mean, like, you know, Routledge is really known for um, for some of their lists, and they're you know they're they're great. Um, uh, one of my colleagues at Stanford who just started when I left, she had been from Routledge, and she you know she published Bell Hooks. It was like so. I mean, there are different um, niche areas at, at those presses that are great too, but I, I I don't know if I can speak to them. So great. Well, we've got about twenty two minutes left. So Ben, can I? just uh, ask you if you want to share any thoughts on your experience as an author with Stanford University Press. 
Yeah, thanks, Anne. And you should thanks, have a everybody. copy of your book to hold I up should. now. I've got, I have, my I have office got, has all I my books. I have got books, but they're just, none of them are written by me. Um, <laughs> Michelle, thank you again. Uh, that was really, really helpful. Uh, so I'm just going to speak very briefly because hopefully we'll have a sec time for a second round of questions. And I think the questions that we've had so far have been really good at drawing out interesting things, some of which I was going to say, so I'll be even quicker. Um, I'll speak briefly about my experience as an author uh, of a particular book that was published by a press that Michelle used to work for, Stanford uh, Press, Stanford University Press. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of difficult for me to disentangle everything that I'm going to say from other um, offices that I occupy as a marker of PhDs or examiner of PhDs, a supervisor of PhDs, um, and then sometimes also, as on the other side, a reviewer of proposals for particular presses. So um, I might just try and talk about the process as I experienced it uh, with Stanford, and then also a few quick comments about how I went about the process of writing the, uh, the actual document of the book proposal, which I think chime really well with what Michelle uh, was talking to you all about. And a lot of what I'm going to say kind of reinforces um, comments that she's made to you. I don't think we're, we're pulling in different directions. Um, I will just start by saying that the book that I published with Stanford arose out of my PhD research in the sense that, you know, we all, uh, for perhaps some of us longer than others, mine that rich theme of doctoral research um, uh, but mine wasn't an immediate kind of publishing of a dissertation to a book so the book that I published was called Foucault and the Politics of Rights and I want to come back to the title um, I think Michelle's points about the title were, um, were well made and I want to come back with an extra piece of advice as well about titles um, but my book was called Foucault and the Politics of Rights it came out in 2015 with Stanford and that arose in a general sense from my doctoral research but wasn't an example of that that production line of dissertation into book. But just on that topic of dissertation into book, I would just add a couple of quick comments because I know this is obviously something that many of us are thinking about. Um, I guess the first is obviously that not all PhDs necessarily are going to work as, as books for both disciplinary in the sense that some disciplines actually think and work more in an article genre than in a book genre. Um, so for disciplinary reasons, uh, and also for scholarly reasons, uh, because perhaps your book might actually be kind of case study based and it might not be as cohesive, it might actually work better as a series of articles. Um, and then again, it may be cohesive, it may be amazingly intellectually um, persuasive, it might just be the case that nobody necessarily wants to purchase a book, uh, let alone read it, uh, about the particular niche topic that you've crafted in your dissertation. So I, I think thinking honestly about whether it works as a book or not and getting some advice from supervisors about that is a really important thing to do. Um, and I think it also follows from that, and I would stress this, and the only reason I stress it is because in reading around, thinking about what I might say today, I saw some advice out there on the internet, um, shock horror, that suggested that you should actually approach uh, the task of writing your PhD dissertation as a book from the beginning I want to suggest that I disagree with that form of advice. And I think it follows from a lot of what Michelle was talking about. Um, the real kind of generic, tonal, stylistic um, uh, distinctions between the dissertation project and the book project uh, mean that you just, you can't really, and you shouldn't approach it in that way. Rather, I think you do need a period of kind of 
wallowing or just leaving it to one side. Um, so if you have the luxury of time, I think that's good. Um, again, the only other problem that that raises, I suppose, the question of time. As we could probably all think of examples of people uh, who have published uh, or maybe fail to publish their PhD dissertations uh, as books. The, it's the problem of the kind of endless rewriting of that dissertation to make it perfect rather than done in Michelle's terms. I could think of a number of colleagues who I've had to have personal interventions with to say, look, it is time for you to just publish this. It's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. It's a time capsule. You can go on and write the next book. Um, but that is obviously a trap that, that many people can fall into, especially in a luxurious postdoc of three to five years. Um, you know, that can, that can be a, a, a curse and not so much a blessing. But in terms of process, I had an excellent experience with Stanford and it largely followed what Michelle was talking about. Um, it was at, my book was actually published not with the law list, but with um, the philosophy and, and political theory lists um, run at the time by Emily Jane Cohen, who is herself, like Michelle, no longer at Stanford, I think. Um, uh, and it was, you know, in, in steps, first an email to kind of work out pitching a general idea, then she was quite interested and said, well, tell me more. So then I wrote the book proposal. Um, then she shared it with, with um, editorial colleagues and then said, okay, we all think this might be a goer. Tell me, you know, when can you get back to me with, with some draft chapters? And so I then sent the next step was sending a couple of draft chapters, which was then put out to review. Um, successfully, as it turned out, uh, a contract was issued at that stage and then I completed the rest of the book and then the book was sent back to the same two reviewers um, uh, who made further suggestions at the end, all very critical and constructive and helpful ones, and the book was published. So it all kind of really went um, as it was supposed to. Uh, and I found my experience to be a really kind of positive and productive one. One thing I found, um, I was at an immediate disadvantage and I wonder if this Perhaps Michelle can talk about this, but I interpret this as a function of not so much the Americanness of Stanford, but perhaps of the size of Stanford. As you said before, there's smaller press pushing into the kind of, you know, mid rank of presses. Um, but one of Emily Jane's initial kind of questions to me was, oh, but you're not American. I said, well, I can't change that, unfortunately. Um, uh, there's nothing I can do uh, about that. What, you know, have you published in American journals? And what was underlying that I think was a concern on her part, you know, not being able to market that book in the States or in North America, which perhaps might not be as big a concern um, for larger presses like OUP and CUP, which perhaps have a bigger capacity to market globally. I managed to get around that, not by changing my birth certificate, but by publishing in, in um, you know, US locations and by convincing her that the book would actually fit quite well um, uh, in uh, particular disciplines and sub-disciplines that were, were re re well represented in, in North America. I can say more about that, um, but let me just conclude and then leave time hopefully for some questions by talking a little bit about the process of writing the proposal itself. I found, I found it to be a very difficult document to pull off the book. The genre of the book proposal, I found really quite difficult. Um, and I think I found it difficult because I found it a kind of hybrid genre. So if I think about um, if I think about a kind of continuum of the kind of work that that we do as as academics and scholars, a continuum between fact and fiction. Um, you know, we, our scholarly work we like to think is factual or at least evidence based, modest, sober, 
rigorous, making particular calibrated interventions at one end. And then if I think of an example of fiction or fantasy, it's often the, um, you know, the academic promotion application, uh, which is often written in the key of hubris, if not of fantasy. Um, and the book proposal I found to kind of hover somewhere between those two things. You're wanting to kind of, you're trying to sell, it's a sales pitch of a sort. Uh, you're trying to kind of convince um, an editor that there's a hook here, that there's something interesting and that other people might be convinced of this and might be convinced enough to actually buy the book. Um, so there is a kind of salesmanship aspect to it. And yet it's also, it's a scholarly salesmanship. Um, you can't completely, you know, it, it has to pass muster, not just with an editor who knows her list and knows the field, but then it actually goes out to other academics to read as well. So I found actually hitting that note to be quite difficult. And I often found it difficult because at the time I was writing the book proposal, I was writing it at the same time as redrafting the introduction to the book itself. So, and I would often have them on the screen at the same time and I'd be toggling between them. And the two voices sent me a bit mad. So in the introduction, I was very much kind of crafting the intervention. You know, it was kind of often a bit sort of voce. But then in the actual proposal, I was having to actually articulate a different voice and be a, li a little bit more of a salesperson. So I found that a challenge. And I guess the way of dealing with it, I took a lot of time over it. I read a lot of other book proposals. So at the University of New South Wales, on our internal, um, in our internal intranet, there's a, there's a kind of um, archive, a bank of, of successful book proposals that you can read. I'd also advise you to kind of talk to your PhD supervisor or other senior colleagues in the department to actually have a look at one that, that worked, that was successful. So I read a lot. Um, I looked around on the internet and there's a lot of advice out there and a lot of it is, is really good. Um, there is a particular book, um, it's not the one that Michelle was referring to, but on the University of Chicago uh, webpage, I think they must receive a lot of cold call submissions because they're quite stipulative about what they do publish and what they don't. And they say to everybody, read this book, which is also a Chicago book. And there is a chapter in that book um, about how to write a good proposal, uh, which again, really good advice. So I prepared quite a bit um, and I took, and I you know, possibly agonized over it, but I took it seriously as a genre um, and thinking about who was going to read this and what they, what they were um, going to be looking for. And I got people to read it. And I think with choosing people to read my draft, it was important to me to choose insider readers and outsider readers. And, and possi possibly the, the best advice I got was from the outsider readers um, who were outside my subdiscipline, but were generally you know, interested and knew what the genre was supposed to be about. And they were the ones who were better at answering for me the kind of why bother or the hook question, as Michelle um, put it. So I thought, um, I guess all I'm trying to say is don't rush that, don't rush the book proposal, take it seriously. Um, and also at the same time, think seriously about, uh, and this aligns with a lot of the advice that Michelle was giving, I think about um, thinking about lists and sublists and thinking about what editors have published and what they might be interested in publishing. Think about where your book might fit. Um, and I, I think in the advice that I've given to people as a supervisor and sometimes as, as an examiner, some of the problems I've, I've found people encounter with writing the book proposal has been where they are trying to push it quite a closed door. Like they're set on a particular press, but the press isn't actually really interested in publishing what they're, what they're trying to say. Um, so I've always tried to encourage people to be, you know, um, you know, to, to, to not try and 
change their message to fit in with a particular press, but start with the work, start with the message, start with the intervention that you want to make, and then think what are the kinds of presses that are open to this work and where might I best fit that work. Then it means you're not doing so much selling on redescription work to try and convince particular presses. I just close and then hopefully we'll have a few more questions at the end by saying a few comments about um, the particular aspects of that, um, uh, of the format of the book proposal, which is, you know, when I did it for Stanford, it was roughly as, as Michelle kind of suggested, I gave, it was about a six to eight page document with a title, more on the title in a second, a brief description of, of, of the book, a slightly longer description of the kind of background and the context and, you know, what I'm intervening into and, and why, uh, a table of contents with chapter descriptions indicating kind of how long each would be and how advanced that work was. Um, I didn't have to explain the life cycle from dissertation to book because it was just a straight up monographic project, um, but a timeline to completion of the book and then a kind of marketing section where I kind of said, what are the competing titles? I'll just say two things. On the title, I think Michelle's points are, are really, really helpful. I would only add um, advice that was given to me by the political theorist, Bonnie Honig, who read a draft of one of my proposals. And she kind of crossed out. She said, that is the worst title I've ever seen. So the title that never saw the light of day um, was for, for the book that then had life as Foucault and the politics of rights was Critical Counterconduct. Now that is a bad title, not because it's alliterative and not because it's just ugly, but because it, it breaks Bonnie's rule of titles, which I'm now sharing with you all for free, which is that the title of a book should not be the answer to the question that you pose. So the, the, the title should be the question, Foucault and the Politics of Rights. Really? What's that about? I didn't know he had anything to say about rights, but you don't hit them over the head with the answer to your question. The answer, you keep up your sleeve. Um, and if it's as clunky and alliterative of that as that, you definitely don't use it as a title. The other thing I would conclude by saying is on the marketing, um, the kind of competing titles thing, this is not so much with an author hat on, but with a kind of supervisor and a, um, you know, advisor hat on. Some of the, the worst aspects of draft book proposals that I have read and commented on have been that marketing section where I think people have actually been in a rush to be too competitive and just elbow out of the way any possible book. So I think Michelle's examples of kind of having more recent texts is a good one. But I would just add to that, that I think, um, you know, it's, you want to try and pitch your book um, alongside others that have already been published without necessarily suggesting that they are all completely wrong. Um, and your, your book is the only one ever, you know, A, it's unbelievable. B, you want to actually, I suppose, convey to an editor that there is an existing body of scholarship of people who are reading and writing and thinking about this question. Um, and I think that's often, it often reminds me reading those, um, reading those uh, descriptions in book proposals remind me of the first draft of a literature review in a PhD dissertation where, where a student will actually be at pains to kind of say, well, there's this body of scholarship over here and they're completely wrong. There's these guys over here and they're wrong as well. And I'm, I'm the only one to say this down the middle. And obviously, you know, you want to get to a point where you're drawing on bodies of scholarship and suggesting that actually these people are not complete idiots and there's something to learn from them. And I think some of that needs to be carried through into that marketing section of the proposal um, to suggest that actually you're not out there, you're not the only one who knows what's going on, but actually you're connected to, but adding and extending on an existing um, set of books. Okay, I could say a lot more, but perhaps let's, let's go to questions if, if people have any some. 
Sure, there are a couple. Thank you very much for that, Ben. Um, Michelle, a couple of people have asked about the timeline that it takes from the kind of first email to the book on the shelf when you take a copy home to your mum. Uh, um, is there anything I, one can say? I will say that it's a long-term relationship. <laughs> so, so like your editor and your press, because you're going to be dealing with them for a while. Um, so... I would say, you know, in the shortest possible timeline, if you had a manuscript that was already ready to go into peer review, um, you could expect peer review, final revisions and approval to take about six months. And then, you know, depending on the press and the time that you put the book into production, it can be another anywhere from nine to 12 months for publication. So we're talking about at least a year and a half, but that is the fastest and it almost never works that way. I would say, I would say on average, you know, it's, it's more like two to three years for when I'm, you know, actively working with an author through the proposal or full manuscript or revision process or, um, you know, or the, the actual production process. So, so it does take a while. And I think that's another point um, you know, for people who are going to be on tenure clocks or have other professional um, considerations, being really upfront with your author about like your own timeline and, and then what you need. You know, I can't tell you how many times it just broke my heart. Like I've had authors who say, okay, here's the final manuscript. It really needs to be ready in five months so that I can put it in my tenure file. And, and, and at that point, it's already too late. Um, so, so just make sure that you're, you're telling people like, okay, I'm on the, you know, I'm on this clock and I need, I need a bound book by this date. And then, you know, most editors, we realize that we want to, um, make sure that we're working with you to make that happen. So, um, just give us lots of an advance timeline, but it, it's a long-term process. Um, and we've only got a couple more minutes. So one question is about, um, is it, is it difficult for Australian authors to approach American presses? Just building on Ben's observation about that question, because I think um, we have a more uh, automatic colonial relationship with Britain, which drives many of us there. Uh, do you think we should come to you guys or are we wasting our time? Or if we come, how should we come? Um, I don't think you're wasting your time. I think, I think the main thing to, to keep in mind when you're drafting the proposal and thinking about getting in touch with a U.S. press um, is, and it doesn't even, you know, I think going back to, to Ben's point, I don't think it had to do with Stanford's size, um, you know, that, that Emily Jane, who's very blunt, she's lovely. Uh, that I, can't, I can see her seeing, saying that to you. Um, but, uh, you know, I it's not about the size, it's really about university presses in the US. I mean, our distribution channels, our marketing channels, um, you know, everything that we do, uh, it's, it's very focused on, on the US, at, you know, just as any, any business that's like located in, in a certain location is probably, you know, focused on that. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't want to see work from around the world. I, I certainly do. Um, but what it does mean is that when you're putting together the proposal, really thinking through, um, you know, how it will intervene within the U.S. and then within all the other parts of the world. Um, you know, most university presses, especially the mid-size and, and larger ones, have 
really good um, sales and distribution outside of the US. And so we definitely take that as a total plus when we can see international sales. Um, but yeah, just to be honest, I mean, you know, US presses care about that market. Um, so, so being able to identify what's going on in that market is really, really helpful. Mm. There's several questions in the queue and I am conscious that I'm not going to ask you to stay for longer than um, past five o'clock. So I'm going to put one last question to you and to those who have posted questions like Emma and stuff, we will come back to them because we're going to have multiple um, sessions on this topic and some of them, some of the questions Ben and I and other people with experience can talk through with you even though we don't have the authority of a commissioning editor. So let me just pose one question to you, Michelle, which is um, the question of non-native English speakers. Is there uh, something particular that people whose first language is not English should think about, bear in mind, be wary of? What happens in that instance? Um. That, it's a good question, but it doesn't, you know, I think there, there are things, so for instance, when I worked on the anthropology list at Stanford, um, certainly I worked with a lot of, um, you know, English, mm. not um, their, their native language. And, you know, there are ways that we can work on that. I mean, some authors, depending on what, what a book needs, some authors work with developmental edit editors, um, along the way and then that can help with with the style and the language um, but we also have things internally like during the production process um, one thing we can do is um, this gets into the weeds but um, you know there are different ways that we copy edit a book um, for some for a book that comes in you know really really just like impeccably done there are not that many errors we give it a lighter copy edit yeah. um, but for books where you know, there's, there's perhaps, um, you know, like we want to make sure all the idioms are making sense and, and all that kind of thing. Um, we can do a heavier edit. And so um, there, there, you know, it's not something that I worry about. And it's certainly, you know, when I see a great project, that doesn't even cross my mind as something that would be, you know, something I would put in the pro con piles. You know, I, 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 I think it's um, something to consider, especially when you're putting things together and, you know, as, as Ben said, having, having advisors take a look at your stuff before you send it to a press. Um, people you trust, both internally and externally, um, is helpful for anyone, and I think especially in that case. So Perfect. Well, there are many more questions which we would not be able to address even in an extra 10 or 15 minutes. So I think we need to draw the session to a close. Um, is there anything you wish you thought you should have said, Michelle, that just in case? Um, yeah, I mean, well, two things I'll say, uh, I hope I'm, I've showed you that editors are not scary people. We love <laughs> hearing from, from, from excellent scholars doing really cool work. Like it's one of my favorite things is to just talk to people and hear what they're working on because I got into this job because I didn't want to specialize in anything. I just wanted to like scoop up all the really cool stuff that was happening. So, you know, reach out to people. And then the other thing I'll say is if you, if you get rejections from a place, don't get discouraged um, because 
oftentimes, I mean, I would say like 95% of the stuff that I decline, it has nothing to do with the book not being a good book. It has something to do with the fit or the fact that I only publish 20 to 25 books a year and I already have a book on that topic. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, just don't get discouraged. Don't, um, don't worry about it. Like go on to the next press and you can always ask us for feedback. I really love it when, you know, if I, if I decline something, somebody says, wow, is there anything I could have done? Or, you know, do you have any recommendations for other presses who might be interested? I think that shows initiative and it's really great. So I will leave it there. That's a very encouraging and helpful note upon which to end. So let me on behalf of everybody say thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. And thank you also to Ben for sharing your thoughts and experiences with multiple hats on. That was very useful. So um, we can't applaud, but let us all just wave and say thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Michelle. That was amazing. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.